and unsurpassed. Penetrating and perfect Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning, everyone. Before I start, I just wanted to say that during work practice, I changed the food in the hummingbird feeder, which during the winter I do maybe once every five days or once a week. And we only have one species of hummingbird that stays around here during the winter, but in the spring, the rufous hummingbirds come back. And there are these, I don't know if you know what they look like, but they're these really chubby little guys that are really, really bright. And they suck down the nectar really quickly. So I, I filled it yesterday and I came out this morning to sit zazen and it was empty again. And uh, they were buzzing all around my head. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, okay, okay. And um, they are a joy. And this term keeps coming up, the wondrous Dharma. And I was thinking that that is the wondrous Dharma. Very easy to understand the wondrous Dharma in a Rufus hummingbird. And then I thought it's much harder to realize the wondrous dharma when some big truck smashes into the front of your car in your house. (laughs) Isn't that also part of the wondrous dharma? I I don't know where that fits in, but it it strikes me because, and I'm a little off topic here, but uh, we did talk a lot about harmony, Steve and I, when we were uh, discussing the last precept, which now I will get to the point of the lecture, (laughs) which is the final, we talked about this Wednesday night in class, but it's the the 10th grave precept, or as we say in our temple, the pure mind precepts. And that says, I vow to respect the Buddha unfold the dharma and nourish the sangha and the response during the ceremony is to expound the dharma with this body is foremost the virtue returns to the ocean of reality it is unfathomable we just accept it with respect and gratitude and for me I hear that line in the full moon ceremony. I was, I was thinking it, it completes the service, but it, it, that isn't really the sense for me. It's more, there's a wholeness that happens at the end of the ceremony. A kind of, well, part of it is a little bit of relief after doing all those vows and chanting all those names, but, but it's more than that. It's, it, it's in my body, and there's a kind of ease that I experience 
at the end of that ceremony that that's encouraging and keeps me coming back. But we were also talking about how there's a lot of very beautiful language about returning to the ocean. So we've, we've taken refuge, we've worked through all of these and lived these precepts. And here we are at number 10, returning to the, to the virtue of, to virtue returns to the ocean, the ocean of everything, the ocean of the wondrous Dharma. And it can sound very, and we all lived happily ever after. <laughs> and and uh, we decided that that probably wasn't it, living happily ever after. So, Steve, did you want to continue? Sure. So, yeah, we don't live happily ever, ever after, apparently. It's sad to say, but it's true. So, yeah, for me, the vow to respect the Buddha, unfold the Dharma, and nourish the Sangha language brings back to me my own Jukai ceremony. I mean, we said all the precepts, but for some reason, that one stands out to me for maybe a couple of reasons. And one reason was because I'd seen several Jukai ceremonies before, before ours. And um, I remember having seen people trip up on that one and sort of like being alert that it was coming and, and listening carefully so I could repeat it without having to be prompted uh, to finish it because it is a little bit complicated. Bow to respect the Buddha, unfold the Dharma and nourish the Sangha. But the other thing is that during that Jukai ceremony and I think it was probably around the time of repeating that, I just had this sense that this is right. This is the right thing to do. And that doesn't come often in my life. And it seems that that is something about the wondrous Dharma um, is within that rightness. And I don't mean right as in right versus wrong. I mean, just kind of accepting this, accepting what is and accepting Maybe my own decision as part of it, my choice to be there, whatever it is, but it, it's just this moment is, is it. I also talked to Kate. We talked quite a bit about what is the it to respect the Buddha and unfold the Dharma and nurse the Sangha. And we talked about seeing everyone as Buddha. And to me, that's a, that's a, a tough one because, you know, there's, there's, of course, the historical Buddha who I never actually met and there's, or I could take it more like metaphorically, like the Buddha that I emulate or manifest in Zazen that we all manifest in Zazen by sitting upright. But what about somebody who hurts me? You know, somebody close to me. And one way I, that kind of in our culture, there's this idea of separating the person from the act that hurts you, like I think Christians say, hate the sin, love the sinner, or more secularly, love the person, not the act. That's all nice, but there's no luxury of separating the actor from the act in our practice. It's all the wondrous dharma. So everything is the teacher, even hurtful things. So uh, I wonder if I can accept both the person and the act with respect and gratitude. And I thought I wasn't going to talk to Kate a little bit about this, but I sort of 
feel I've processed it enough that I could talk about. It'd be easier for me probably to talk about my, it was my car that was smashed while it was parked in front of a cafe that Kate was responding to. So I had my own like little experience of the wondrous Dharma feeling not wondrous at the time. But I actually want to talk about something else, which is that when, when my father was dying in the hospital and it was clear that he wasn't going on, my mother had a meltdown and couldn't be with, with him. And at the time I was, and still am a little bit kind of resentful or think it was the wrong thing to do that the family should have been there. But on the other hand, what happened was that I was able to be with my father without the distraction or without just, I was there for his last breath. It was only, it was only this, a uh, couple of members of the staff and Chia and I, and that was, that was a very, I want to say a sweet moment that there was something about that, that I value. So I can't have one without the other. I can't have like this moment and then imagine it had been some other way. So in a way, I have no choice but to accept that with respect and gratitude, respect all of it, including the, the act of someone close to me that I found hurtful at the time. And, you know, I'm honestly still working on it, but it's feels like it's easier to come to terms with and with some distance and when working with this preached set. It also doesn't mean if, if you accept everything with respect and gratitude, that doesn't mean say nothing when you're hurt. And I did say something at that time, because feelings of hurt are teaching too. They're part of our negotiation with this um, wondrous Dharma. So it's, it's the idea. And, and even if the person, if, if you try to tell somebody, I felt hurt by what you did, and the person doesn't quite acknowledge or doesn't understand how you were hurt, the way is not to turn away from that either. So, Kay, I'll give it back to you for a moment. I think one of the things I most took away from the reading we did about this was, well, and in my understanding, how my, my practice has shifted is in the beginning, it's easy to objectify the Buddha, to see the Buddha as this person, Shakyamuni, who lived all those years ago and sat under the Bodhi tree and became enlightened as something separate from me. And Reb makes a real point of saying that that was not how the Buddha understood enlightenment, that it wasn't till he got up and went out and saw himself in the other that the enlightenment was there and and that it wasn't a static thing or, or something to be a, attained by if you do this and this and this and this then you become a buddha and having grown up catholic the way i did it, i mean we had the commandments and it was a very different understanding of working with ethical guidelines. I mean, if you did all those things in the Ten Commandments, then you got into heaven's gate. <laughs> and that's not what this is about at all. This is about, and he brings up that story about if you see the Buddha in the road, kill him. Buddha is not outside of you. Buddha is 
all beings everywhere all the time and enlightenment has to do with being aware of that he also said that for suzuki roshi the most pure and direct way of sustaining the buddha treasure was just to be fully present in every moment and the precepts i think are what help us you know assist us and keep us aware of being present in every moment and so the question always is how can we see this eternally present buddha and there's no answer for that it's something i can hold in in my practice from day to day so next is unfolding the dharma i also sometimes want to ask and mary maybe we can do this later but i asked steve <laughs> why why we, we say things differently so we in the the precept here is that we have in our full moon ceremony, which I love and prefer, we say, I vow to respect the Buddha, unfold the Dharma and nourish the Sangha. But when I go to Reb's book or I go to Daido Lori's book, it's about not disparaging the three treasures, which has a very different kind of connotation for me anyway. It's more of a do not, don't say bad things about the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. <laughs> That's how I hear that. So I much prefer, but, but I'm not sure why that's there. And maybe we can have that in discussion. Let me see what I got off track a little bit here. This goes back to what I was talking about just a moment ago. The true suchness of the Dharma was thoroughly realized when Buddha successfully taught the Dharma face to face to another being at that moment a buddha was together with another buddha and the dharma was exhaustively realized in that meeting so to me that says that it's about transmission and traditionally that's all the zen stories we hear about and teacher to student and student to teacher teacher to teacher and it also feels like it's not one directional. There's some kind of reciprocity in that exchange. And it makes me think of um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is, is one of my favorite current environmental activists. And today is Earth Day after all, so I thought I would bring her in. She said, all of our flourishing is mutual. We must honor the interconnectedness of nature and recognize that humans are responsible for contributing to and bettering the world. And so that's the Dharma and vowing to uphold the Dharma is carrying it in that way for me. It also occurs to me that that the the Buddha is the Sangha when we see other people as the Buddha or at least work on that. And 
the interesting thing about that is that sort of balance between I like this person, I don't like that person, I don't like what this person does, I do like, don't like what that person does, I do like what the other person doesn't do. Or, and and so if we, we can choose to see each other, I mean, of course, there's a practitioners, the smaller community of the Sarma, the Sangha, <laughs> excuse me, and there's also the larger community of, of nature, of the world, of the universe, of everyone, which Kate was just alluding to. Part of that balance, I think, it, one an interesting way to see that is that I've got a couple of things I want to defer to Robert Aiken about. One which he talked about the three treasures, and particularly I want to talk about the song. And this, it's the quote is from Aitken is every day Zhu Yan called to himself, Master. And he replied, Yes, be alert. Yes, I will. Don't be deceived by others. No, I won't. Robert Aiken says, this case is sometimes misunderstood as simple self-correction, as someone at the end of the day might reflect on mistakes and resolve to do better. Such meditation is fine, but it is not GUN's present practice. He's receiving, maintaining, and presenting the three treasures. He's saying in three ways, I come back home. Robert Aiken doesn't do this, but I can parse it in this way. Master, yes, take refuge in Buddha. Be alert, yes, I will, take refuge in the Dharma. Don't be deceived by others, no, I won't, take refuge in Sangha. So we're seeking the truth with ourselves and with each other. We're not seeking to be deceived. And so how we negotiate that in a, in a, kind way and being truthful is a big part of it and then then finally this sort of gets that sort of puts it all together um robert aiken again talks about the three treasures as talks about the harmony of things and and points out how it is not happily ever after but in his own words. And uh, he makes a couple of references to life in Hawaii, which is where he practiced. And by the way, I'm reading from The Mind of Clover, these two quotes. The second one from Aiken is, the Buddha is the enlightened one, the historical Buddha to begin with, but also the nature of the universe and of all universes, the wisdom of earthworms and the dirt in which they have their being. The Dharma is doctrine, and also the reality it describes, vast and fathomless, clearly in focus with the sudden cry of a gecko in the early Hawaiian evening. The Sangha is harmony of the Buddha's disciples to begin with, but also of all beings in the magnificent network of interrelationships, the balance of stars and the symbiosis of termites and their parasites. Sangha is also the harmony of doctrine and enlightenment, phenomena and the absolute form and emptiness. The Heart Sutra expounded in the rainbow playing about Manoa Falls. The Heart Sutra, of course, being our primary wisdom doctrine, our primary wisdom sutra. So that's about what I had to say. Kate, anything else or should we go to questions? I just wanted to, uh, you, you said it all and <laughs> I had, 
there was a wonderful thing that Dido Laurie said, and he said, in order to practice the precepts, we need to take responsibility for them. And I think attending the full moon ceremony is one way of doing that. Barring that, you paying more attention, having them somewhere so you can look at them more than just once a month, that kind of thing. But I think the other thing is, he says, take them into your heart, give them life in your life. And for me, that that's the point with, with all of our study and practice and zazen is to give the to take them into our heart and to give them life in our life so any questions or comments mary i don't remember where the language came from kate it's a it's a standard uh translation the one that we use i didn't make it up but i don't remember and uh, it may be that might be that San Francisco Zen Center changed it with the translation project, which was a group of scholars that translated a lot of basic things. The trouble is that some of them, the translation by committee is often not so great. And some of them had tin ears. So we didn't change much. But that's, that's the best I remember. Thank you. All right, Zach. I was waiting till everyone was done because I, I mentioned to Steve a few weeks ago that I had a question when we were finished. And that is when I hear the, the 10 precepts, it, there really is only one without reading it too carefully and all, but just hearing it and feeling it. It's kind of expressing one thing. Or I guess my question is, if you think of them in total, what, what does it mean to you and Steve? I'll let you go first, Steve. Sit <laughs> <laughs> Zazen. Take it with you into the world. Kate? It's funny because a lot of times when I was studying these and, and discussing them and thinking about them, so often I had that experience, well, this flows into that and there's really no separation between the one before it and the one after it. They're all, and that was the value, I, I think, in this deeper study for me is seeing that. As a human being, I tend to overcomplicate things and try and figure everything out. So, and I, I, maybe that's why we take refuge in the beginning and, and in the end, return to that vast ocean. That's the best I can do, Zach. Mary? <laughs> I wanna ask, so Zach, how would you phrase it? You said that it seemed like it was a one to you. Well, maybe that's, yeah, okay. To me, kind of like Steve. Once again, not not like reading each one and the words and all, but just the sense of it all. I kind of get it's not about me. It's like don't just think of yourself. Have compassion for others. It's kind of like 
it always, I always found it weird that people got hung up about wearing a mask during COVID. And it's like, it's not to protect you, it's to protect everyone else. It's that kind of, um, it's that kind of thing. Like, think of others, stop thinking about yourself. That's a very simple way of doing it. But anyway, that's what I kept hearing over and over in the, in the the word body comes up a lot, body, 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 body. And Steve and I talked about this a little bit too. When I was with my parents and brother when they were dying, there wasn't anything to do. And it feels very strange sometimes. And I knew more clearly than I know most things that that was exactly it was exactly right that I should be there and just being present I think is a big part of how the wondrous dharma shows up or becomes actualized I also think to me also, well, I said that if I had to sum them up, I would say sit Zazen and bring it into the world. I also practiced for a little while when I first uh, went to Berkeley, just sitting. And that really wasn't enough because something has to happen with this guy in here to sort of say, what am I paying attention to? Or, or maybe I'm not sure, but something, there's a mysterious process of understanding the precepts and understanding the doctrine and the Dharma that you have to sit in order to internalize it, but you can't just sit without also understanding the larger context of why we're sitting, that it's a compassionate act, that it's a wise act, that it's, it's about letting go. I was noticing as I was... Um, Talk about things not being separated. Yes, my car was probably ruined yesterday, but also I had a, a wonderful walk in the park earlier in the day, and I was I was sort of not thinking too much, just enjoying it. And uh, it came to me that I used to have no idea what it meant when people said non-attachment. You know, I'd read about Buddhism, and I thought, oh, that's that's interesting. Okay, so how do you do that? Now I feel like I have to be careful when I talk to somebody who doesn't meditate. Not that I go around saying non-attachment all the time, but if somebody asks what meditation is about, I feel like I don't want to just jump into something like that. I, I, you know, I feel like it's really hard to communicate if somebody doesn't have the practice. So, yeah, I don't think it is a good idea to put all the precepts into one. In fact, sometimes we need to expand, and like we did with this class in our very small way to expand on them and, and understand them more and internalize them. So it's heart, mind, and body. Yeah, somewhere in one of the readings, I think it was Didel Laurie, he said, as soon as you start to talk about it, it's not the thing you're talking about anymore. <laughs> but we do our best. Mary? Kate, when you were talking about the Dharma, I thought I heard you quote that as, as uphold the Dharma, 
And I, it's unfold, isn't it? Yes, it's unfold. Yes, yes. What did you mean to say uphold? And if so, what does that mean to you? That was a mistake on my part, so I didn't mean to say it. So uphold or unfold, and they're different. I, it, for me, uphold feels more directive or to hold it up for everybody to see and learn about. Unfold, it, it seems more organic to me. Like most things I've learned in this practice is I, as much as I'd like to, can't will something to happen. <laughs> so unfolding the Dharma is more of allowing, it has more the feeling of, there's the discipline of zazen and study. And then and and it's not in that order it's not it's one of those weird time things but unfolding is a part of what happens from practice and but it's not like i say i'm gonna sit zazen and then i'm not gonna harbor ill will against that witch at the office who's trying <laughs> <to help. laughs> All right. something like that as you were both speaking, I started thinking about this last one as kind of summarizing all of them, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. But then I, I like the way Steve pointed out that while we can kind of summarize, it's each one is important. Each one has this different little aspect and, and a little different teaching. So yeah, I appreciate that clarification. Maybe like facets of a jewel. <laughs> Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to rend them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it.